I'm so thankful for all the people that uh, make this work. I'm really thankful uh, for Stephen and all the things he does to put these PowerPoints together. I'm really thankful for Matt also, because uh, as you'll see in a moment, I, I decided this morning to preach about something that's uh, kind of obscure and specific, and the fact that he picked out two songs that went really well with what I wanted to say is uh, commendable. So, with that, uh, I want to do a sermon about the Bible, about Jesus, and how the story of Jesus is beyond comparison. It is unique in so many ways and strange in a lot of ways. Jesus makes unusual choices in friends. His teaching is somehow both extremely controversial in every society and yet at home in all of our hearts and our lived experiences. And that is something that is profound and beyond the capabilities of any man to come up with. And so I really want to preach a sermon about the inconceivability of Jesus' story. But before I do that, I have to preach another sermon to set the groundwork for this. Because here's the thing. We live in a world in which there is this pervasive idea that the story of Jesus was fabricated. Uh, Or maybe more precisely, that the story of Jesus is a fish story. That Jesus came to earth uh, or you know, he was just a normal guy, that he was a prophet, that he, he did incredible things, he spoke true things, but he was not the son of God. And Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. And then throughout time, generation after generation, the story grew and grew and grew until Jesus was God in the flesh that came to earth. This is an idea that many people in the world believe, that it took hundreds of years for the story of Jesus to be the story that we have written down. That's what they believe. And I want to talk today about that notion. And effectively, the thesis of my sermon is that Jesus has always been God. And that throughout all time, from the earliest Christian writers who wrote about Jesus, they have always believed that Jesus was equal with, preexistent with, uh, one with God the Father. So that is what we're going to be spending the whole time this morning talking about, that Jesus has always been considered to be God. And so I want to, I want to talk about this because this is, it's really critical that we be able to defend this notion because Jesus' divinity is kind of the core of this whole thing that we're doing. We have chosen to follow him. We have chosen to pledge our allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And that has huge ramifications for our lives. And so that's why people want to disprove this notion. That's why people want to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the story. Because this is so central to it. And so I think it's really important for us to discuss this concept this argument against the truth of our Bibles and how we can understand and converse in this discussion. So first, as, as I said, the point of, that we're trying to prove is that from the beginning, from the earliest Christian writers, 
They've always believed that Jesus was equal with, preeminent with, and one with God the Father. But before I, I get to proving that, I, I want to take us to the book of Galatians. Because I want to prove that although, although this, the idea of Jesus' divinity is the, the battleground, the place of argument, that there is a lot that is not up for debate. There is a lot that, as we look in Galatians, which is probably the earliest book written in the New Testament, and it's one of the undisputed letters of Paul, which we'll get to in a little bit. In Galatians, already so much of what we believe is written down and accepted as uh, canon, as, as orthodox belief within the Christian circles. This is written maybe 20 years after the death of Christ. In the first five verses of Galatians, we find pretty much the whole summary of, of what we believe. This is Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches at Galatia. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So what we see is here, just 20 years after the death of Jesus, that the Christians believe, that Paul believed, that Jesus was Christ, that Jesus was Lord that he had glory forever and ever, that God is our Father, and that God sent Jesus to the earth, and that Jesus died freely to take away our sins. And if you were to throw in a couple other verses from Galatians, in Galatians 3, it talks about God sending the Spirit. In Galatians 3 also, it talks about how we are justified not by works, but by faith. And that pretty much covers what we believe as Christians. The only major thing besides this battleground topic, and I would argue that's even in Galatians, um, but is the, is the fact that Jesus' resurrection means our resurrection, but that's in 1 Corinthians, written just a few years later, also indisputably. So, as I, as I step back, what, we're, what I want to say from this point is that people are going to make, a, maybe make a compelling argument to us that Jesus was not considered to be divine. And of course, we're going to be arguing against that notion today. I don't think that's true. But if people are going to argue that, we need to recognize how narrow of a lane, theologically speaking, they're arguing. Because we have all of this firm foundation, all of this uh, clearly written for us. This is what the early Christians believed these, belief, these beliefs did not change over time. They already believed this at the beginning. And so if we have all of this, then we, if someone is going to debate with us about this very narrow, although very important, idea of Jesus' shared divinity with God, then we need to recognize that they're not calling into question all of these things. Not all of these things are they saying evolved, just this very narrow thing. And so... That, I think, gives us a, a, a strong base to, to talk from, to feel less like we're thrown off of our balance as we talk to people like this. But 
as I said, the argument that they're going to make to us is that Jesus was not always considered to be God, that Jesus came to earth, he never claimed to be God, and that over time, people changed the story to be that way. And, of course, this is going to require them to pull off some pretty elaborate uh, acrobatics with the text. And so we're going to talk through this because in order to deny what is, I would argue, maybe the, the basic claim of the New Testament, they're going to need to do some pretty elaborate stuff. And so we're going to discuss all the texts that they say don't count. So if you're going to say, if you're going to make the argument that Jesus was considered to be God equal with God, the first thing in my brain that I'm going to go to is all of the places in the Bible that it says Jesus is the Son of God. And here, and this is not even a complete list, but it's about 100 texts that talk about Jesus being the Son of God. And if I was going to argue to somebody that I thought Jesus was equal with God, that's the place I would start. But if you're having a discussion with somebody who says Jesus was not always considered to be God, and you point to these texts, they are going to tell you that they don't count. And the reason that they don't count is because Son of God isn't actually a very specific title. That in general... Anybody who wants to follow God is considered to be a son of God. And actually, they will be right about that. In Romans 8, we're told all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Galatians 3 tells us, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And even in the Old Testament, Psalm 82, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. And so they will tell us that we can't argue that Jesus being the son of God means that he is equal with God, divine with God, because we are all sons of God according to the Bible. And we'll grant that for the sake of argument, but I would like to say, as a point here, that a hundred places say Jesus is the Son of God, and you don't get that about anybody else. And I think that points to me in the direction that Jesus would be uniquely the Son of God. But that is neither here nor there, because that is the next thing we are going to argue, is that here are 27 passages that say Jesus is uniquely divine or uniquely the son of God. Passages like John 10, which says, I and the Father are one. Now, we might all be sons of God, but we are not all one with God the Father. We might all be sons of God, but we are not God's only son, John 3.16. We do not all have the, fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwelling in us bodily. We were not all there in the beginning when God created the world the invisible and invisible. We were not there to create the world. These texts make claims about Jesus that show that he was uniquely divine. But as I said, elaborate acrobatics. So they're going to tell us that most of these texts don't count. Uh, and the reason for this is that they're going to argue that about three quarters of the New Testament is written too late to actually show what early Christians believed. And again, I do not share this view, but that's what they're going to say. And that leads us to have to base our argument off of eight books of the New Testament. There are seven undisputed letters of Paul and maybe the book of Mark, uh, with the earliest of the Gospels, uh, is, is maybe early enough to argue from. And so uh, seven undisputed letters of Paul. Let me talk about this. So in critical Bible scholarship, they don't believe that this is the inspired word of God, which is very sad because, I mean, it's amazing. They're missing out on a lot. But nobody uh, who is taken seriously in scholarship will argue 
that there are seven letters that Paul legitimately wrote that he was a man that existed and he wrote between about 50 and 65 at least seven letters. And those would be Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Philemon, and 1st Thessalonians. And these books, nobody disagrees, Paul wrote them. And so if we are going to be discussing with someone who doesn't believe in the inspiration of scriptures, we can at least agree that whether Paul was inspired, whether this stuff is true, people believed it and wrote it in these times. And so they might throw out most of the New Testament, but I can still point to you 66 times in just these eight books that say Jesus is Lord and make a lot of other powerful claims. And so what about this? What about Jesus being Lord? I mean, that's something that was only said of, of God the Father in the Old Testament. I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty profound that they would say that about Jesus. And yet, through some more acrobatics, they managed to discredit these as well. Uh, they might first point to the idea that these, these titles that we might say only fit Jesus are used of other people as well. Uh, for example, Nebuchadnezzar is called the King of Kings in, in Ezekiel. Uh, Cyrus is called the Lord's anointed or the Messiah. Uh, in, or in Psalms, it talks about David. And this, of course, is a text that uh, Peter uses about Jesus in Acts 2. But that David found joys at the right hand of God. And so there are, they would argue that even though we might believe that Jesus is Lord, and even though they might have believed that Jesus was Lord in some sense, that he's not uniquely Lord, that other people have had these sort of uh, divine titles. And I, 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 think, I think that's a little bit grasping strong. Again, you might be called king of kings in one text, but 66 times in a quarter of the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord. I think that means something. But there's that argument. There's also an argument that says that Lord is a general title. Uh, you can talk about, uh, for example, the Baals are called uh, lords in the Old Testament in a sense that they have a master relationship or a teacher relationship. And so they view Jesus as a teacher. And that later on that had... Uh, deeper implications. But one argument that they will make that is worthy of investigation and will take us, this is the, the final argument that we'll be investigating from them. They will say that maybe Jesus was considered to be Lord. Maybe he was considered to be divine. Maybe he was considered to be somehow elevated to God the Father's level. But it was not always that way. They will argue that Jesus was considered to be an angel or a man or a prophet and that he was given divine status. And they would point to a text like Romans that says Jesus was declared to be the son of God in the same kind of way that we might knight somebody and declare them to be, now you are Sir Lancelot or whatever. That before you weren't, but now you have been endowed with this status. They argue that early Christians believed Jesus was not equal with God, but that he was endowed with Godship at his resurrection. And they would point to Acts or several other passages that talk about as Jesus was raised, he was therefore exalted, that, that, that his resurrection cemented his Godship. 
And then they would point to Mark, and they would say that Mark moved that forward to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that when the Holy Spirit descended on him, when God said, you are the Son of God, that now that was giving him some sort of divinity, and that the Holy Spirit allowed him to do those things. So at that point, uh, they argue, the early Christians believe that Jesus became God, but that before that, he wasn't. Now, I just want to say that I feel like a lot of this is grasping at straws. Like, and, and I feel the same way. There's a, a book I read recently that makes the argument that the Bible doesn't actually teach that homosexuality is wrong. And I was like, it just is irritating to me, honestly, when people try and take the Bible and tell me that it doesn't say what it clearly says. But that is neither here nor there. I, here are their arguments. This is what they say. These are the texts that they're going to throw out. They're going to tell us that they don't count, and they will find interpretive, alternate interpretations to discredit most of the texts, which I think is ridiculous. But playing by their rules, I will still show you from the Bible that early Christians believed what what. This, uh, these later Christians believe that, that Paul and John did not have radically different views of the deity of Christ, that they had the same because they all believed in the same Lord. And that is what I will call the unsuppressible truth. And for that, I'd like to take us to two texts, the first in Philippians, the second in uh, 1 Corinthians. So we'll turn over to Philippians. Philippians is one of the later of the uh, indisputed letters of Paul. And in Philippians chapter 2, we get an argument that I think pretty clearly shows that Paul believed that Jesus was preexistent with God. In Philippians 2, the verse, uh, the proof text is in verse 6, but we're going to read verses 5 through 11. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we get at the end of this, Jesus exalted to the right hand of God. This we're not in disagreement about. But verse 6 tells us that Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, as with all of the texts, They have alternate explanations. But what is this text saying? It is clear that the thrust of what Paul is saying is that Jesus was God. He was equal with God, but he chose not to hold on to that. That he descended to earth fully divine, fully man, but in some way emptied of uh, the power, the equality that he had, that he died as a servant and then was raised once again to the right hand of God. Jesus was God. He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If the equality with God was an option for him to grasp at, that means that he could, that he had it, that he 
could have claimed equality with God. And so I think this text, again, there are alternate explanations, but I think this text pretty clearly shows that early Christians believed, that Paul believed. And this text is actually even earlier than Paul. Probably it is a hymn or a poem that Paul included from an earlier time that is already circulating. So within 20 or 30 years of Jesus' death, this is something that they all agreed, that Jesus had the option to be equal with God and chose to empty himself to come to earth. And that, I think, is profound. And I think that gives us a basis to argue that even as early as Paul, Christians believed that Jesus was one with the Father, pre-existent with the Father. The same sorts of things that we might find in the book of Colossians that talk about that Jesus created the world with God. But we've got another text to prove because I want to show you that they also believe Jesus to be equal with God. And as we're turning to 1 Corinthians 2, I'll give you, some, give you two honorable mentions. Uh, honorable mention number one is in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul prays to the Lord, Lord here meaning Jesus, to have the thorn in the flesh removed. Now, you can argue that other people are called Lord. You can argue that there are other people called King of Kings or Son of David. But nobody else gets prayers but God the Father. And the fact that Paul believed he could pray to Jesus means that Jesus was Lord in a unique sort of way in Paul's mind. A second place, pretty similar argument as in 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul uses the Shema, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He talks about God the Father and God the Son in the same breath. And both of these, I think, pretty clearly show us what we're talking about. But I want to take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And here we get an argument. I'll preview it for you a little bit. Paul is going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit as the mind of the spirit as the revealer of the mind of God the Father. And this is an interesting kind of idea because uh, while skeptics can argue that early Christians believed that Jesus was fully divine, no one can debate that the Holy Spirit was viewed to be. In fact, you can prove that from the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit was uh, their equal part of God. And so this text will will point, and this is not the point of the text is to make this argument, but that's what we're going to do with it, that the mind of the Spirit reveals the mind of God, but it also reveals the mind of Christ. So we'll read 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 through 16. It says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." 
So, what's this text saying? He says in verse 9 that no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That God has this plan. He's always had this plan. And the only way to know about it, because it's mysterious to us, even the angels don't fully understand the plan of God, is that God would reveal it to us. And he says the only way you can know the thoughts of somebody is if the spirit of that person reveals it to you. And the only way you can know the thoughts of God is that the spirit of God reveals it to you. But we have the spirit of God to reveal to us the truth. But there are people, they're not going to get this. Earthly people, they don't have the spirit. They're not going to understand what God is revealing to us. But you will understand. Because in verse 16, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Here, Paul uses the text, Uh, from Isaiah 40, uh, talking about God the Father, calling him Lord. But Paul, when he talks about Lord, is talking about Jesus. And so already we've got some pretty strong implications. But then he says, we have the mind of Christ. Now, in another context, you might could argue that the mind of Christ here means the mind of a servant, the mind of someone who came to earth to serve the Lord. But here in this context about minds and thoughts and revealing the inner thoughts of somebody, I think it's pretty clear that the point of us having the mind of Christ is the same as us having revealed to us the thoughts and the mind of God the Father. And that the Holy Spirit reveals to us not just the thoughts of God, but helps us to understand the thoughts of our Lord Jesus as well. Because all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, are one God, united and equal. And so, let's pull up for air. We've, we've gone, like, real deep. So, What have we proved? What what have we said this morning? There are people in the world who believe that the story of Jesus is a fish story, that it started out small and that it grew and grew and grew until Jesus was beyond life. He was God himself. And they believe that John and Colossians and these stories that talk about Jesus being the fullness of deity or one with the Father are much, much later. But we have argued today that Paul, indisputably written 20 or 30 years after the death of Christ, that's not very long ago. That's within the lifetime of a lot of you guys to remember things that happened 20 or 30 years ago. Within that space of time, the same things that John was saying, the same things that Paul said in Colossians, although they ranked them way later, Paul was writing at the beginning of his writing that the story has not changed. Now, again, as we're arguing with a skeptic, that that doesn't make it true. They're still going to disbelieve it. But the idea that the story evolved over 300 years and the, is a lot easier to swallow than that within the lifetime of most of the people, the story changed to the point that Jesus was the son of God. Paul believed it. These early Christians believed that Jesus was equal with, preeminent with, one with God the Father. And that is important to us. That's important because, as I said, this is the core of what we believe. If Jesus is not God, then what are we doing here? If Jesus is not God, then what did we confess when we were baptized into his name? We said, Jesus is Lord. We said, Jesus is King of the Jews, King of my life. I pledge my allegiance to that guy. And if Jesus is God, that has huge implications for us. And if not, that's why they want to disprove it. If not, then Jesus can't tell us what to do. 
But because Jesus is the Son of God, because that's what we believe, that means we have to follow him. That means we have to obey him. Because Jesus is Lord, reigning, that means that his rules, his teachings have deep implications for us and have to change the way that we live our lives. But one other thing that I have to say about what this means for us is the fact that Jesus is God teaches us so much about the love that God had for us. That God was in heaven and there was a problem. The problem was that sin was dividing his beloved people from him. And so in order to fix this problem, God came to earth, lived as a man, died a cruel death. And as John tells us, this is how God loved. That he gave his only son. For what purpose? That whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is love. This is our God. And we have so much to be thankful for as we reflect on the idea that this Jesus is truly God. And I know that's not the point that we have proved this morning, but it is the point that we believe. It's the point that we are defending. And in the coming week, probably next week, I'm going to make the second, point to, second part to this sermon. And that is that this story of Jesus, which did not evolve over 300 years, but was solidified pretty quickly, is not the kind of thing that man could have written, not the kind of thing man could have come up with. And so we have that to look forward to. But this morning, I'd like to close with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much for sending down your Son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We thank you for sending your Son to this earth your son, the creator of all things invisible and visible, that all things that were created were created through him. We thank you for sending him to us to give us your word, to reveal to us your truth, to reveal you to us because he was with you from the beginning because he is you. Thank you for giving us your son to die on the cross for our sins, to give us a hope of eternal life. Thank you for sending him to give us your inspired word to show us how to live our lives. Thank you for sending him to break down the wall of sin that divided Jew and Gentile, that divided us from you so that we could all be one, that we could be your adopted children. Thank you for his sacrifice, for his life, for his lordship, which we have pledged our allegiance to. Help us to live our lives with him in the forefront, guiding our thoughts so that we would live in service to you the same way that you, as your son, lived in service to the Father. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.